Welcome to the Mobile Dev Memo Podcast. I am your host, Eric Sufert. My guest today is Alex Bauer, who is returning to the podcast for the second time. Alex is the head of product and market strategy at Branch, the mobile measurement and linking company. On the last podcast, I called Alex a guiding light on ATT, and that continues to be true, which is why I'm very excited to welcome him to the podcast today to discuss all of the things that we learned at WWDC this year. Alex and I were actually at the Mobile Apps Unlocked, uh, otherwise known as MAU conference, this week while WWDC was happening, so it made for a very eventful time. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. I can't believe it's been over a year since the last time, but you know, I, I still feel like a celebrity every time I come on here. You are. You are for this audience. So we were at MAU. How was your MAU? I had a very lovely time. It was busy. I mean, I volunteered to do that live WWDC teardown on day one. And right. I don't think I would necessarily volunteer to do that again next year. It was, you know, trying to consume Apple's podcasts and uh, keynotes yeah. and tech sessions while being at the conference. It was, it was a lot, but at yeah. least now it's over. Yeah, it's stressful. It's like I have earnings season. I'm slammed, and then WWDC, I'm slammed, and then Google I/O. Depending on what they announce, I can be slammed. But it's like. You're just sort of consuming and then you're interpreting and digesting and then regurgitating, right? <laughs> and, just um, on a super accelerated time zone because everyone's there live in the conference room. Right, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, for you, what you were doing, yes. But I mean, my, my normal cadence is just writing the next day. So that's a little bit a little bit easier. So my MAU was like stuff during the day and then at night writing about WWDC. I didn't, I didn't do any of the fun social stuff this year. I was just working. But so your session, I think, was on Tuesday, right? Was on Tuesday. So we had the uh, the keynote from Apple right. on Monday and, morning, but and the none platform of the tech sessions had come out yet. Exactly. So you had the keynote, the platform, State of the Union, but the juicy stuff this year was in the tech sessions, and that's kind of what I want to talk about. The keynote was, you know, it was fine. It was just a bunch of consumer product announcements. I felt like some of them were missing, like the anchor flagship product right like so so the car os it's like okay well where's the car and then you know this the spatial mapping feature was like okay well where's the headset right you know what i mean it was like they were laying the groundwork for a lot of like really cool consumer products that just aren't ready yet yeah i mean wwdc was always supposed to be a developer conference and now they've started using it as the big consumer product announcement right. each year right. so that keynote it always has to be very mainstream media friendly basically yeah. it has to be consumable by the tech blogs and by cnn exactly, exactly. Honestly. Yeah, yeah. so when when privacy starts to make the keynote as it has the last couple of years i guess you know that it's top of mind for apple so the fact right. that it didn't this year is also a signal in itself about how apple's thinking about things this year exactly right i want to jump right in and i don't want to bury the lead right so i think what, what i want to talk about today is Wednesday, we had the SK Ad Network tech session. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the new additions to SK Ad Network, the changes to SK Ad Network. Thursday, they had the ATT session, and they talked a lot about aggregated measurement, fingerprinting. I want to talk about that. But I want to hover here for one quick second because the keynote had become you know, this anxiety-inducing, industry-destroying moment in time. And I think a lot of people approached that or engaged with that with great trepidation in the past. And this year, 
everyone kind of sighed a sigh of relief right at the end of it. Okay, no big consumer facing privacy changes, features, policies. There was nothing big that was consumer facing that was announced related to privacy this year versus two years ago, ATT, obviously. Last year, hide my email private relay. I think there was, I I don't want to say expectation, but there was certainly like a presence in people's mind this year that private relay might be announced to be expanded. So basically all traffic leaving the phone that was not announced, that didn't happen. And so I think when the end of the keynote came, many people were like very relieved, right? Like that there weren't, there weren't like going to have to, you know, completely abandon their operating model and find a new job or find a new way of of running their business. That's what happened kind of, right? I think it's kind of, yeah, it's basically what happened. You don't have to rewrite your product roadmap for the rest of the year, assuming that you're in this particular industry. Like you said, it wasn't super disruptive this year for ad tech, but it's kind of like, you know, the eye of Mordor. It's just, it's pointed somewhere else right now. So I'm sure that everyone in the buy now, pay later industry is probably having a really bad week, but for ad tech, not quite so much. Ad tech, not so much, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, let's jump right in because we've got an hour. I want to make sure that we give, you know, full consideration to these changes. I want to start with SK Ad Network. So Wednesday, SK Ad Network session, but as you pointed out in the Mobile Dev Memo Slack, which thank you for doing that, Apple actually updated the kind of SK Ad Network, not not documentation, but what would you call that? It was just the homepage, the SK Ad Network homepage. It's basically. like one of the buried pages about ad attribution somewhere in the big developer portal that is developer.apple.com. They happen to mention some of the coming soon things for SK right. Ad Network 4. And it's kind of, it's puzzling why they managed to publish that three days early because the main documentation still isn't out, but right. useful for us that they did. Yes, very useful. So I, I took a chance and I wrote a post about just what was on the website, hoping that the developer session didn't go into to too much more detail or that my interpretation of the description of these new features was not totally incorrect, which I don't, I don't think it was. There was a little bit more detail in the developer session. We'll get into that. But I took a shot, took a chance. I think it was the right thing to do. But anyway. I think your gamble paid off there yeah. because uh, having read the blog post and then comparing it to the additional detail that came out in the tech sessions, I think you pretty much got all of the calls right. I think what's also interesting this year is Apple's had some digital lounges going on, which is basically a Slack community right. that you can apply yeah. to join. But there hasn't really been anything like that in the past. And uh, some of the accessibility to real-time Q&A with the engineers behind these new changes has been honestly awesome. Like I've never seen anything like that from Apple before. So I see that as a, a big positive this year, but just the, the ability to clarify some of the way they describe things and get feedback quickly on whether your understanding is correct. I've definitely learned quite a bit in the last couple of days from those. Wait, so what were those? I think I missed that. There was like a, there was like some sort of online chat room that you could, you could apply to join. Yeah. Basically Apple's always had these, uh, you could sign up to do a one-on-one session, kind of, they call them the tech labs. But this mm-hmm. year they introduced this concept of the digital lounge, which you could apply if you have a developer account, you just apply to join it. And it was it was facilitated by Slack, but basically it was you submit a question and engineer from Apple will answer it. And sometimes they'll say they can't comment, but a lot of times they'll actually give you some information that wasn't there before. Interesting. Okay. Fun fact, I was in discussion with Apple for a little bit about having them do like an AMA type thing on the mobile dev memos. Like, I think that went out the window when I wrote the long post of, about all the ways that Apple advantages its own network with ATT. But once upon a time, we were discussing that and they seemed pretty excited about the idea of reaching a bunch of developers in one place. Okay, SK Ad Network, 
four new things, right? And let's just go through them in, in the order that they're listed on the website. By the way, I would point out that they don't give a date, right? Where I'm assuming this rolls out kind of with iOS 16, but we don't know. They just say later in the year. That was ironically one of the questions that I asked in the digital community, uh, the lounge this morning. And it doesn't seem like it's going to necessarily be iOS 16. It could be that they just haven't determined it yet, but they were pretty clear right. about saying later this year. And they said right. that to multiple different people asking this question. So I, I think it, it could be iOS 16.0, but it could also be a case that it comes later in the year and iOS 16.0 doesn't have SK Ad Network 4.0 in it. Interesting. Okay, but I guess we could assume the, the point releases for iOS usually come out in Q4, right? Or end of Q3? They usually come out the first couple of weeks of September. Okay, end of Q3. So we, so maybe Q4, we could expect. Yeah, it could be, yeah. End of Q3, okay. early Q4. Yeah, they basically said this year. It's, it's, it's similar to the rollout of ATT. It's just, you know, right. coming early next year. And then there is some flexibility in what they actually pick as early. Or just the flexibility to, to delay it. That's what happened with um, ATT. Um, okay, let's just go through these one by one. So, I mean, it. I just want to sort of jump right in and I would sort of preface this by saying, you know, let's get pretty technical and anyone listening who doesn't feel totally comfortable with this, maybe read the blog post first, uh, mobile dev memo, it's titles is SK ad network 4.0, a turning point for mobile advertising. And that'll give you some, some good background, but I, I don't want to like spend a lot of time explaining stuff because we only have an hour. Yeah. Okay. First one, hierarchical source identifiers. This replaces the campaign ID, essentially. Campaign ID, so the big limitation with SK Ad Network, and this is something I pointed out, I wrote this article like right after it was announced, and I said, hey, it was called Dear Apple, these changes will make SK Ad Network more helpful for developers or something like that. And I said, the campaign ID being two digits only supports 100 values, right? Zero to 99, or zero, zero to 99. And that's problematic because a modern ad platform makes many different pairings of ad creative, to uh, targeting parameters, right? And all each of those permutations of those things needs to be captured in the campaign ID because you want to measure how well this creative, this ad creative, this particular ad creative, the video, the image, whatever it is, that, that specific explicit thing, you want to measure how well that performs when targeted against some you know, audience, right? And, and if you can't pair those things together, then you're not going to be able to evaluate the performance of that particular creative within the context of that particular audience. And so a modern ad platform would make many, many, many different permutations of those things, right? And the, the strategy kind of pre-ATT was you dumped a ton of ad creative in, in Facebook ad sets every week, right? That was a creative testing strategy. You had a test account or you just had a test campaign uh, or maybe even just a test ad set and you just dumped creative in there. And then you just, at Facebook would just sort of allocate budget, right? And it would it would allocate distribution and it would stop allocating budget and distribution to the creatives that didn't work. And you would kill those. And then you would sort of graduate the best performers to the live account or the live campaign or the live ad set or whatever that was. And there's way more than a hundred different permutations of those combinations of creative and audience target, right? I mean, we used to do like the last company I worked at, I built a tool, it's called Draper. And it procedurally created ad creative for the purpose of creating like hundreds a week videos, video ad creative to test. And you, and obviously if it's hundreds a week and you've got a hundred campaign IDs and that is reduced that hundred by the random timer, which means that since you don't know when it, you can end a campaign, but you don't know when all the postbacks are going to come back because of that random timer, you have to put that campaign in reserve for a couple of days while the rest of the postbacks flow through and you're sure 
that there's no more postbacks coming, which would obviously pollute the next campaign that you use that campaign ID for. So I go into a lot of detail on mobile dev memo in that article. So if you want to read up on those limitations, feel free to do that there. But what hierarchical source identifiers does, and I'm ranting, but I'm going to let you speak in a second, is it basically gives you up to four digits to use, right? And so instead of two digits, it gives you up to four. Now that's dependent on the privacy threshold being met. And what Apple has actually introduced with this new SK ad network is that there's sort of like three levels to the privacy threshold instead of just the binary yes, privacy, no privacy thing that they had before. And so the number of identifiers you get to use is dependent on that. And that's actually one thing I missed in the article that I edited later because that wasn't in the documentation. But let's just start there. So this is great. This is basically expanding the number of creative IDs that you get to use and the ad platform gets to utilize on your behalf and therefore the number of permutations that can be tested in real time. It expands it from 100 to theoretically 10,000, right? So 100 times 100, two sets of two digits, right? So I'm going to end my spiel. Tell me what you think about this. I think you're right. It's basically giving you a lot more signal to work with. Uh, we'll have to see how this ends up being implemented in real life. I don't know if it's quite as simple as just saying you had 100 before, now you have 10,000 to work with because of the, and this this hierarchical term, I actually find it a little confusing. I don't know if that's what I would have picked, but right. maybe nested or, or ranked or something would be right. a little bit easier to work with, but it's Apple's term, so you might as well use it. The whole point with this hierarchical thing is you're not guaranteed to get access to all of this data. Right. So right. you wouldn't want to say value one is directly equivalent to value 9056 or whatever. Right. You need to say that you have 100 guaranteed values yeah. and then you may be able to expend, uh, extend that by one order of magnitude or you might be able to extend it by two orders of magnitude, but you need to right. make sure that the data within each order of magnitude is consistent. Otherwise, it's, exactly. it's going to get really messy really quickly. I think actually this this three levels of crowd anonymity, and again, that's, that's Apple's term before it was privacy threshold. Now they've introduced right. crowd anonymity. I think that is worth dwelling on for just a minute, because as yep. you said before, it was binary or you don't. And now it's, it's gradiated. You get... Yeah less, more, or most, or sometimes they call it low, medium, or high. But right. regardless, you're now getting progressively more detail revealed in multiple levels. It's not yeah. just on or off anymore. And that, that shows up in several of the new changes, the, yep. uh, the campaign yep. identifier being one of them. But it's much, in some ways, it, I think it's easier to work with than just the single, um, yeah. single privacy threshold before, but it does require you to think in terms of gradations rather than on or off. Right. And also it's unknowable to the developer. We don't know how that's defined. We don't know when you... Yeah. The, the criteria for what counts as passing each threshold is still secret. It was secret before. It remains secret. But they did, in one of the questions in those digital lounges, they confirmed that the two, like there's basically two privacy thresholds now, so that you get three different right. buckets. Yeah. They did confirm that neither of those privacy thresholds is directly equivalent to the previous single privacy threshold. It sounds like they've recalibrated all of them. And the three different levels are not necessarily the same levels across everything that's been introduced. Like the, uh, right. the source identifier has three levels, but just because the source identifier is in the high level doesn't necessarily mean that everything else you're getting will be considered in the high level. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Okay. It so was, it's not in the documentation. That's some of the stuff that somebody come out in these Q and A sessions. 
Got it. So that applies per parameter. That's interesting. So I think one- It appears to. It appears to, yeah. That they obviously won't comment other than saying we can't comment. Right, yeah. And we don't know if this is dynamic or static, right? Like if it's just some static value or if it's dynamic dependent on the size of your campaign or like the number of installs being driven by your campaign. We don't, we don't know that, right? They did. There is a mention in one of the sessions saying it's based on install activity, but right. I, I think it's never been totally clear how that happens. I think the hypothesis no. is when you first use scan to register to say an install happens, there's some communication yeah. between the device and Apple to say, well, this campaign you registered for is currently in privacy threshold three or whatever. Right. So you can get this data, but that's not officially disclosed anywhere. Right, 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 right. Yeah, because that was actually pointed out to me this week by like an AppsFlyer engineer that that communication does happen at the moment of install with the Apple server. And that's mm -hmm. where it's determined because before it was just a single privacy threshold. So user installs the app, the SKAD network apparatus pings Apple server, says, hey, we just got an install. The postback is signed by Apple, but the parameters that would be populated later aren't, right? Because you pointed mm -hmm. that out to me. That's why the conversion value was never signed because that gets attached to the postback later. And then Apple says, okay, yes, okay, this postback just got them over the hump for uh, privacy threshold and therefore all the benefits that bestows upon the postback are unlocked, right? And this I'm talking about the old paradigm. The old so, way, yeah. Right, the old way, go for it. And now I'm assuming the SCAD network apparatus will ping the Apple server and say, hey, they just reached the mid-grade privacy threshold. So now you get to unlock one additional numeral, one additional integer in, in the campaign ID identifier. And then, oh, well, they just, and then, you know, X many installs later, they say, okay, now they're at the highest grade. And so now when you send this post back, you are given the ability to send all four integers, right? Is that how you're interpreting this? I think that's one of the things that is not disclosed and may never be disclosed. I actually, this was what another of the questions that I asked was basically, Will the crowd anonymity level be locked in place from the beginning? So basically, will it, and we haven't got to the multiple conversions piece yet, right. but will it be locked in place at the time of install and everything from then forward has the same level? Or can this dynamically adjust over time so that maybe we haven't got to multiple postbacks, but third postback has a different level than the first? Like, I don't right. think that's that's clear yet. Right, right, right. Okay. And then I think kind of like implicit in this and maybe I just missed it where it was said explicitly, but implicit in all this is that the timer system has been eradicated, right? Because if you're doing yes. the hierarchical source identifiers, you can't do the timer system. And that is amazing news. That is incredible news. And actually, we'll get back to that later because there's, there's three uh, different um, attribution windows now. But that's great news, right? That the timer system has been done away with. The timer system was a thorn in everyone's side. It was inexplicable why they decided to make that design decision, but they've obviously reversed that. That is really good news. I think it's one of the examples where probably the design decision was made with good intent. I think there's probably a really smart set of engineers inside Apple trying to design SK ad network inside a box without really knowing that much of what was going on in the rest of the industry. And they thought, oh, we don't want to have to lock people into signals that they can only get within the first 24 hours. Let's give them this fancy extensible timer system so that they can right. extend it if they want, but not necessarily realizing how insanely complex that would end up being for everyone to handle. So right. I, I think one of the themes I'm seeing in SKAD Network 4 is they are 
they're walking back some of the over-engineeredness of the previous right. versions of SKAD network and getting rid of the rolling extendable timer, I think right. is the biggest example of this. And I agree, I see it as a, a huge win because that was just such a headache to have to manage. Yeah, and it just made a lot of, it made S SKAD network very difficult to use. It made it unpredictable. Yeah, you couldn't really yeah. be sure what was going to happen. And because it was unpredictable, you had to fill in a lot of gaps and you might fill it in with reasonable assumptions or you might accidentally fill it in with garbage. It's hard to know. Right. Like in a steady state, it's fine because you know there's some average turnaround time, right? And you're engineering these conversion values deliberately. So you kind of know what you expect people to, how you expect people mm -hmm. to interact with them. And so you could come to some expectation of the turnaround time on the postback. But if you're changing the traffic mix or you've changed the product, then it's unknowable, right? Like what that turnaround time is going to be. Yeah. And I guess in reality, the industry basically capped it at 24 hours anyway, right. because exactly, that was yeah. what Facebook expected and everyone uses Facebook. So right. in effect, it was already capped at one day. And now Apple's just making the cap a technical reality that nobody has to dispute. Right. And the benefit of that for this feature is that there's no sort of notion of holding these campaign IDs in reserve, right? Because they can't be used because we don't know when the postbacks are going to trickle in because of the random timer. That that notion is sort of totally, you know, done away with, right? Like we don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah, I, I guess it's less that you don't have to worry about it. There are still going to be lagging postbacks that come in much later than you tested the campaign, but at least you'll have some uh, some certainty about how much later. It's going to be a set number of days after you used that campaign ID most recently. Right. Well, yeah. No. To, but define windows, right? So you 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 know when that when that comes in that it belongs to this other campaign. So you can just reuse that campaign ID and the, the exactly the combination. Yes. You, so, you'll but, be able to reverse engineer it reliably instead of having to wonder what was happening. Exactly, because that was a big problem. That 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 reduced the surface area for creative testing now. And so that's why, you know, you're getting nine campaign IDs from Facebook, right? Because they needed to reserve, well, first of all, they needed to just experiment, you know, under the hood, right, with the campaign IDs. So they needed some just to experiment with and create combinations of, again, the creative with the targeting parameters. But then also they had to just hold some of them in reserve, right? And they couldn't use them. So for basically the cool down period. The cool down period, exactly, exactly. Okay, I am happy. I'm very pleased with hierarchical source identifiers. And I say, you know, theoretically, you could have 10,000. Probably it won't work out that way because ultimately for every one of those integers, which is like a hierarchy, you would need to have some representation for every value within, right? Which you might not, right? So like, you know, think of, like if you thought about like the, the last two were just, you know, let's call it the last two integers represented the campaign, right? And then, or the ad set. And then you know, or the whatever the creatives and then the, the third integer represented like the some sort of targeting set and then the fourth integer represented something else like the a format or something then you know each one of those would have to have every possible value for all those integers which you might not you just might not be testing you might not have right so but up you could theoretically have 10,000 but you, you maybe you won't yeah i think it might for for most uses it may end up being simpler just to think of it in terms of priority of information that you want to get back. You're going to get two high priority digits that will always be there. Right. You're going to maybe get a third digit that will sometimes be there. And yep. then you will get a fourth digit that will occasionally be right. there. So what are the two digits you always want to get? You could imagine a situation, I'm just going to use the Facebook ad, like campaign ad set creative, right. because it's a, a three level hierarchy most people are familiar with. But yeah. if you always want to get the campaign, that is the biggest bucket. So you probably always want to get that. You right. have a hundred options. 
And then maybe you want, if it's available and there are enough users in the cohort, you want to know the ad set. So you can have 10 options within that. Right. Right, right, and then right. you want to get, if it's really going to be a big cohort, you want to get the, the creative ID and that's right. 10 more options for you. Yeah. But again, I'm sure we'll see some creative uses of this because it is ultimately up to four digits that right. will usually be available and two of them will always be there. Exactly. And, and I think what you'll see is a lot of people start redesigning their campaign structures to map to this. Right. Mm -hmm. That's going to be really important to, to get the full utilization out of it. But I, I guess my point is like, let's say that highest value, the highest priority hierarchy level, let's say that you only have like three options there. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, then you're not fully utilizing the whole 10,000 because you need nine. Right. Zero. To uh, nine, yes. Ten to yeah, zero to, so if you only had three, like, and I don't know, three campaigns, you have three campaigns and two ad sets. Right. And then you, whatever, eight, you know, 20 creatives, you're not fully, you, you don't, you know, and then whatever uh, audience targets, but you get my point. Let's move on. Hierarchical conversion values. This is also something that I'm really excited about. So one, I would say the difference here between the documentation and the video, the, the developer session was that it wasn't clear from the documentation that there were cases at that lowest level of crowd anonymity that you won't, you still will not get anything, right? So the, the lowest level, you will not get any conversion value. The medium level, you will get the coarse grained and then the, the highest level of crowd anonymity, you will get the fine grained. That wasn't clear in the documentation to me. It, the documentation seemed to imply that you'd always get at least the coarse grained, but it seems that's not the case. You, so there will be post specs that have no conversion value. Yeah, I think that also wasn't clear in the the write-up, which I guess you can call it documentation. It was more like the the marketing team's version of the documentation. Sure, yeah, seen yeah. The, the technical SDK calls yet. But right. yes, within the new conversion, like the hierarchical aspect of what they call about the conversion values is basically you have fine-grained and then this new, the new thing is the coarse-grained. Right, so right. fine-grained is the same six-bidget, uh, six, exactly. I said bidget this morning too, yeah. six-bit value yeah. that already existed and that hasn't changed, but they've right. added this concept of a coarse grain, which is basically a, a low, medium, high. You get three options. Yeah. And as you were, uh, so that does get confusing because now you've got two different low, medium, high concepts within Scan. Right, you've right, got the right. crowd anonymity and you have the uh, SK ad network, like the, the conversion value. But yeah. to reiterate what you said, if we're talking about crowd anonymity levels of low, medium, and high, the low level won't have any conversion value that's right. the same as it has always been if you didn't meet yeah. the uh, the single privacy threshold the medium level is where things are new because you'll get the course value right. which is the new thing and then at the high end of the crowd anonymity scale you'll continue to get access to up to 64 different options right. which is yeah. the same way things worked before if you passed the single privacy threshold exactly. in the past yeah. Let me talk about why I'm excited about this because pre rollout of ATT, so pre, you know, July, right? So when it was, and then, you know, so we're talking about like between April and July, we were testing it with some level of, of adoption, right? And, you know, that was always very well communicated by you, what the level of adoption was with the adoption curve uh, visuals that you'd post on Twitter. There was an, some sense that like, yeah, well, look, we know there's a privacy threshold regulating when we'll get the conversion value. We know that, right? And, but it's probably it's probably a static value. And the reason we're not getting it is that there's not that many people that have ATT installed. And so there's not that many people installing with, or there's not that many people that are on 14.5. And so therefore, there just aren't that many people that are 
you know, activating SK ad network and registering the installs in order to count towards the privacy threshold. And, and I'm sure when this rolls out to the majority of devices, we'll see a lot of these campaigns hitting the privacy threshold and delivering the conversion value, right? And I'm sure it won't be a problem. Then July rolls around and nothing really changed, right? We still were getting a high preponderance of, uh, we're getting a preponderance of, of postbacks without a conversion value. And so all these, all these really beautiful, intricate systems that people had built to instrument sort of LTV estimatable events into their apps, they were worthless because they weren't triggering. They weren't getting sent back with a postback. And so, you know, if you had gone to the trouble of adapting to ATT and trying to build a system that imputed LTV from these various conversion values that you had instrumented, you just couldn't because you weren't getting them back. And now, mm. okay, yes, there will be some segment, there, there's going to be some number of, conver- uh, of postbacks that have no conversion value. But the thing is, if you're not getting enough back to make a judgment, then you run into a chicken and egg problem, right? Because you can't scale the campaign because you can't measure ROI, right? But you can't measure ROI because you can't scale the campaign to get past the privacy threshold. Right. And now let's hope that, you know, this privacy threshold is like a reasonable thing to get to at least the core screen, because if you get to the core screen, at least you can say, look, this user looks like they have the potential to become high value. And if you get enough of those, it's like, okay, well, let's scale this campaign further. Right. Because we're not just flying blind. We have some sense of the value of these users. And like, we don't know, there's no like precision there, but let's say it's just sort of like at the, and again, I I just want to explain that the hierarchical conversion value with the core screen means you sort of surpassed the level one crowd on anonymity and you're at level two. And if you get to level two, then you get three options, three categorical options to include in the postback. It's high, medium, low. And so let's say that you decided as a developer, okay, well, when the campaign gets like for the coarse grained values, I'm just going to say, look, low probability of being a monetizing user, medium probability of being a monetizing user and high probability of being a monetizing user. And you could maybe impute some dollar value to that and you, you would, but it'd probably be a bucket. It'd be a range. Now, let's say I, I'm running the campaign. You know, I need, I need to spend at least as much money as gets me past the first level of crowd anonymity. And now I'm at the second. And I'm getting just a bunch of low probability in the conversion. Like, okay, well, that killed the campaign. It's not a good campaign. But I'm getting a bunch of high values. Now, let's get, okay, now let's scale the campaign more such that I push it past the second level. And now I'm in the third. And now I'm getting really finely grained signals about what these users are doing and how valuable they are. And then I take those big, broad ranges of value and they get much narrower, right? They become actual, almost maybe LTV predictions. And then I'm able to say, okay, this is a good campaign. Let's scale it. But the problem was before you're getting like 50% or 60% or 70% of the the postbacks have no conversion value. You have no idea if you scale that campaign, if it's going to work out, but you know, you don't want to scale it just to get the data because what if it's a disaster, right? So that was, Mm -hmm. that was a dilemma. And I, I hope that these thresholds are set in such a way that in, in a sensible enough way that they actually provide a lot of value to sort of give that first indication, early indication at a low level spend, this is a good campaign. Yeah, I think one of the metaphors I've sometimes used for the old conversion value is if you imagine you're trying to encode a, a JPEG file or something, you have to choose between quality and file size. You can have a small file size, but you have to do so much compression of the data in there that it ends up getting fuzzy and you lose definition. And what we had with the six-bit conversion value in the past was basically Apple saying, you have an incredibly small file size to work with. Right. And some of these super fancy schemas I've seen implemented in various places, they're basically trying to cram in so much detail into that tiny file that you're starting to lose the detail 
and you're risking not passing the privacy threshold and then basically getting nothing whatsoever. Yeah. So as you as you said, with with this additional control, I think it's going to make some of these predictive models a lot more reliable to use. And you won't have to sacrifice or run the risk that you'll get nothing back in order to try and cram more data into a, a single digit. We keep dancing around this multiple conversions piece. So we're going to have to get to that eventually, but there is some nuance there about which version of the conversion value you yes. can get in each post back. Yes. So there, there's still, there's still some complexity there about how much data you get when. Right. But well, overall, it means more signal is available in most scenarios. Right. And, and I think like in the existing scale, with, with scale, you'll get more data. But mm -hmm. how do you get to scale if you don't have data? Right. So, you know what I mean? Like, so there, again, there's that chicken and egg uh, issue, but we are going. So now that's a great segue. The third feature that is presented in this marketing content or whatever, this teaser content is multiple conversions. So I think this, and I wrote in the, in the, in the piece, this is the most exciting of the four. And I'm excited about the other two. I'm not that excited about attributions for web, but that's, that's the last one. I can get okay. excited for both of us for that. We can cover it last. <laughs> okay. Well, let's, I'll let, I'll let you run with it then. Okay. So, so what this is, is what Apple has done, right? In lieu of the timer system or in, in replacement of the timer system is they've defined three different attribution windows. So there's zero to two days, three to seven days and eight to 35 days. And each of these attribution windows gets its own post back right now, as you pointed out in the mobile dev memo slack, there's no sort of like meaningful identifier that ties these together. So if I get three post backs, I have no idea if they're from one user or from three different users, you can't chain these together in a way that is perceivable, right? Is that right? Yeah. And you can kind of understand, I don't know if it's a legitimate concern, but you can see why Apple might be concerned about that. If you could take three different samples from one user, you could probably triangulate right. a pretty good idea of who they were. But yes, there's no way to know that postbacks one, two, and three game from Eric Suford. Right. You'll get postback one in every case. So that's the same yep. as it is today. If you just sum right. up all of the postbacks number one, then that gives you an install count. But then basically after that install count, you're going to get two additional aggregated numbers that you can sum together to say at eight days, I know how this cohort of users is behaving. And then at 35 right. days, I know how this second cohort of users, you won't be able to say this specific user did a purchase exactly. and then they were high LTV and then they remained high LTV or whatever. Right, exactly. And again, which is what, what I wrote in the Slack as to why you wouldn't want to do that. You wouldn't want to chain them together per user because it'd probably be easy to identify who the user was, especially for things where there was like a rare event, right? Like you'd be able to know that that was the same user. Okay, but some, some important points here. One is that the second and third postbacks cannot include the fine-grained conversion value, only the coarse-grained conversion value. Yeah, so basically the first postback, the conversion value could be null, it could be coarse, which means low, medium, or high, or it could be that integer between 1 and 63, or 0 and 63. Yeah. Then postbacks two and three, it can be null or it can right. be the course value. Like right. there's no option. It's not eligible for the fine grain value in the second and third post back. Exactly. And, you know, nonetheless, that is very exciting. And, and, you know, to your point, because they've jettisoned this timer system, you can actually do cohort analysis. You can say, hey, look, no, not only are we getting this, you know, this decent cohort that looks decent from like a probabilistic standpoint or a, just a, an estimated standpoint between zero and two days. But hey, that cohort is still retaining, 
and we, we can actually kind of look at, you know, the cohort level, channel level, potentially even creative level retention curve in a broad sense, because we know like, hey, we're getting zero, we're getting null in the conversion value on the three to seven days. So that means we're getting, we have low retention there because there's not enough users passing through that in order to trigger to get to the crowd anonymity level one or, or two, right? And so that's very helpful information. You can actually do decay curves with this, cohort level decay curves. You can do cohort level analysis, period, right? Because we know that there's a, a fixed timeline. It's not, there's no random timer. Um, and then you can do cohort level K curves, which is just really interesting. And then, you know, if you're good at this and you're, you know, you have the ability to do this kind of like bucketed predictive value assessment, you could actually get a lot of information out of that low, medium, high at days three to seven and especially eight to 35. Like that's really mm -hmm. valuable, right? If you're saying, okay, this, this, we have a bunch of high value users that are passing through that eight to 35 timeline. That's very valuable to you. That's like late stage for a lot of apps. Yeah, the one caveat here to keep in mind is that you'll only get postbacks two and three if something happened during that window. Right. So you don't get them automatically. You can imagine a, a scenario where the user installs and then they disappear for three weeks. Right. And then they pop back up and they do something else. In that yeah. scenario, you would get the first postback and you would get the third postback, but yeah. because nothing happened for three weeks, you've just, you've kind of yeah. skipped over the second postback completely and you're not gonna get a signal for that user in that case. Well, I think that's why they design the attribution windows this way because it kind of, it puts the second one like right smack in the middle of the free trial period for a lot of subscriptions, mm. right? But yeah, you're right. That edge case is also very, uh, that's a complicating issue for now, right, or even pre, ATT with IDFA, that was like an, that was a, like a, that's sort of like anomalous use case or behavioral pattern messed up your cohorts or like messed up your mm -hmm. uh, retention curves. But yeah, nonetheless, yeah, that could happen. But I, I, I'm still really excited about this. I, th I think this is going to give you a lot more depth to work with in building predictive models and building ROAS models for, mm -hmm. for advertising. It just gives you so much more to work with than what you get now. I mean, part of me wishes that maybe it was postback three that could be eligible for the fine-grained conversion value because it seems like by then you'd really have something useful to put into that many more options. Yeah. But yes, you're right. I think having the three signals is going to be huge. And one thing we forgot to discuss in the conversion value section, but those values can now go up and back down again. So in previous versions of SK Ad Network, once you'd increased the conversion value, you could never go back to a lower value. It just had to continue right. to go up. Right, now right. it can be set back to a lower value in future, which I think it's another case of over-engineering being stripped away. I can see why a, uh, a well-meaning uh, store kit engineer probably thought that was going to be helpful. You could just keep calling it as many times as you wanted and not worry about like overwriting your previously set value. But yeah. in reality, I think may like controlling that value is more useful than having to worry about when you call the right code. Yeah, I always thought about SKAD network the, the first sort of, you know, iteration of it as like the advertising equivalent of like blockchain. It's like this was not designed with a use case in mind. It was it was designed like in the abstract to not not to solve a problem, but just to be this kind of like, you know, theoretical data model. And it, it just didn't doesn't work like in practice. It's 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 very inefficient. Right. And maybe I'm offending you because you're a major crypto uh, enthusiast, but or maybe I'm offending some people in the audience. But it, but it just seemed like that. And that's that's always why I thought, you know, this guy, Nick Zabo, probably was 
you know, the sort of um, the creator of blockchain because he was like a lawyer. That looks like a, a data model that a lawyer would create, <laughs> not a computer scientist, right? Uh-huh. Okay. I'm going to let you run with SKI Network Attributions for Web because I don't really care that much about it. And I, I think, anyway, I think it's way overdue. I don't know why it's taking this long to. Dump. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep it short and I won't run with it too far, but you're right. It's overdue and it, it just, with the combination of SK Ad Network and private click measurement, which is Apple's other privacy preserving attribution framework, I think we're just slowly starting to pencil in the gaps that exist right. in different user conversion flows that are typical in an app marketing strategy. And there are still gaps. Like this this addition of web to app support is big, but it's certainly not the only one. You still have no way to attribute a conversion into an app that's already installed. For example, that's impossible. You still can't do it. But I think the web to app use case is a an important precedent because it's the first time that you can use a link to inject information into SK Ad Network's decision model. Yeah. And while Apple's pitching it as web to app ad support right now, I think there's some interesting possibilities about how you could use web to app for things that are maybe not strictly speaking an ad, maybe like affiliate network conversions yeah, right. or even like a web to app smart banner, because at the moment you have these edge cases. And in some cases, they're not actually edge cases at all. They're a very common thing where the ad ends up getting last touch credit for something that was actually driven by a different marketing campaign and you just have visibility inside SK Ad Network to know that. So I think the the uh, the possibility of getting more signals into the attribution model for SK Ad Network is really positive. Yes, I, I mean I could I could see the value there. I just I don't do a lot of web advertising for apps, but I mean yes, if I think of like an affiliate model that makes a lot of sense. I could see some of these sports books, you know, probably utilize that a lot or whatever, um, crypto wallets. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the, like the, the first version of SK Ad Network, I felt always had a, a slant towards games and it wasn't usable necessarily by games. It wasn't sophisticated enough, but it was designed right. with that kind of app vertical in mind. And it left a lot of other verticals like e-commerce or... Sure real estate or whatever, it left them totally out in the cold because their conversion process and timeline was so different. For that kind of vertical, the Web2 app flow is a lot more important and commonplace. So I'm glad to see it supported here. Yeah, well, you know what, actually, I was talking to someone at Reddit and they had a, some difficulties with SK Ad Network because I think a lot of the app installs are reinstalls, right? Because you're searching on the web, you go to the website and then, you know, on your phone, Right, because you, you search for some, it's not necessarily, you're not searching for Reddit content, you're just Google searching for something. And the top result is a Reddit thread, you click through, you go to the site, and it says, well, do you want to keep reading it here, or would you rather install the app? And so you go, yeah, so I'd rather install the app. You install the app, and you're reinstalling the app, right? And I guess now that could be captured through some kind of, there's a campaign parameter that could pass through, it would be Ask Ad Network, and you could... It could be. It could be theoretically. I think there's some investigation to do to see whether it's possible to get SK Ad Network to support what is technically not an ad. Like Apple would basically have to approve some party in the ecosystem as an ad network, even though they're technically not showing paid promotion. But assuming Apple allows that to go through, there's no reason why you couldn't. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, what if you ran an ad? I mean, I'm just thinking out loud here. What if you ran an if, if this was if this was um, SEM, 
this is an SEM campaign, could that flow through? Mm-hmm. Like if you're running an SEM campaign to some, and not, not Reddit, but right, because they wouldn't do that. But if you're running an SEM campaign to the website, and then you popped that, hey, wouldn't you rather watch this, wouldn't you rather check this out on the, on the app, could that contain the campaign parameters and have that instantiate SKI network can flow through? Yeah, theoretically, that is the kind of flow I think should be possible now that it supports click through from web. So lots of investigation to do there. But maybe I've convinced you this is a little bit more exciting than you originally thought. Yeah, maybe. I'm just thinking about all the scammy mobile web traffic that I've always <laughs> stayed way far away from, but like pop unders and stuff like and banners and stuff like that. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the things that so far appears to be the case, you have to this is another question confirmed in the digital lounge this morning. You do the user does have to explicitly engage with the link. They have to tap it actively. Right. And it has to be directly sending them to the App Store page. There's right, no right, redirect right. chain involved. So I, I think that removes some of the scamminess. It has to be visible, interacted by the user, and can't go redirect them through all sorts of other links first. So right. it okay. when used with those specifications, I think it cuts out a lot of the cruft. Okay. I think that was a pretty thorough overview of SKI network expansion. Any last final thoughts before we jump to fingerprinting? No, let's get to the fun stuff. Okay. So yesterday, and we had talked about this. We had talked about what we thought might be in this session. And so they did the ATT Explore App Tracking Transparency. That was a that was a session. You know, everyone saw it on the on the schedule. They had a teaser image that I thought maybe contained some information, but it, it didn't. Yeah, that was me just reading too much into that. So we watched this video and the first 10 minutes of it are kind of like, yeah, this is the reasoning for having introduced app tracking transparency. This is what we consider to be tracking. And, you know, here's some data that cannot be used if the users opted out, such as email address. And, and they went through the whole kind of background of app tracking transparency and, you know, just making the case for why it was necessary. That's, that's fine. But towards the end of the video, they made two sort of revelations that I thought were striking, right? So the first was they said, look, we know that there are these platforms that are doing sort of aggregated measurement, right? You send them user level data, they aggregate it. And then what they send you back is aggregated. So you're not receiving, you know, enriched user level data back. You're just receiving, you're sending them sort of raw user level data. And what you're receiving back is aggregated campaign data, but you're not receiving enriched user level data back, right? That's what they said. And we know that that's happening, right? And the way they just the way they sort of visualized that, where they had the Palabout server, the ad network, and then they showed the aggregation happening at the user level into some data set. And then that data set, that aggregated data set is being sent back to Palabout server. And they said, they put a big exclamation point on that. And they said, no, this is not allowed, right? This, these aggregated measurement solutions are not allowed. What do you read into that? I won't ask you to pointedly name what you think, what kind of solution you think they're referring to there. If you want to, feel free. But what do you think about that? Because I feel like that was like considered to be a gray area. And now Apple said, no, it's not a gray area. It's a clear violation of our policy. What do you, what do you think about that? I think I'll claim the fifth on uh, naming any specific <laughs> systems. But as, as you said, uh, what they're basically saying here is you can't have a separate but equal system to scan. You can't create a different attribution model that is okay because it only outputs things that look like scan, but a little bit better. 
And I, I guess that the, the idea behind these systems is always that if you process user level data of users that have not given app tracking transparency consent, but you're doing it in sort of inside some sort of clean room, and then you're only outputting data that quote, looks similar to scan, but hopefully slightly right. better then the idea was that should be okay because you're not giving user level sure. insights back out the other end of the system. And I think what Apple's confirming is what most of us have thought all along, which is it's the, the collection source, which is apps and the nature of the data, which is user level right. that matters for compliance with the policy. There's, there's no like Switzerland for user level data carve out where certain right. parties get like, diplomatic immunity from the right. ATT rules. Right, exactly. They get, you know, UN observer status. They don't. Like, yes. it's, it's, it's transmitting user-level data from one party to another. Yeah, you're right. Everyone knew that you could justify it. You could steel man it. You could make an argument for why that was compliant, but only because Apple had not clarified the rules. Th these were mm -hmm. ambiguous. And, you know, you could say, oh, well, you know, look, if you consider that what they're getting back and so that they're not getting the full context, they're not, you know, then, then it's compliant. Well, Okay, who's to say that's wrong because the rules were so ambiguous and nebulous, right? Well, now they're not. Now they're very stark and, and clear. And so, you know, Apple has said, this is not permissible. This is a violation of ATT. Now, the bigger question is enforcement. Let's get to that in a second. But nonetheless, Apple has made it clear, right? And I didn't think they ever would because Apple likes to operate in the dark. They don't like to clarify things. They like to have max optionality and enforcement. And now they've drawn a new red line. It's much more sort of visible. And it's much more sort of public. And they've said, this is not an acceptable use case. This is not compliant. Now, the question is, and we'll talk about enforcement in a second, but like, what do app developers say? Do they say like, well, look, Apple said it's not compliant. I don't want to be, I don't want to be in violation. I don't care what the vendor's saying. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to participate because Apple said it's not compliant. I'm sure there's some people that would say that. I'm sure there were some people that would say, well, you know, I'm going to be told explicitly that what I'm doing is in violation because I need to use this system, right? Hmm. I think maybe a, a, a more going back like 10 seconds, one of the, the more interesting analogies, probably Apple likes everyone else to operate in the dark while they have the only pair of night vision glasses. So right. that's, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of the precedent they're usually setting. But uh, you're not wrong here. I think an interesting parallel might be to the legal environment that we have in the US and you know, certain Western European countries where you have laws that are written yeah. and then you have precedents that come from court right. decisions over many years. And in this case, the app tracking transparency policy, like the written words on the web page, that's the, the law. We've had right. a lot of law clarification over the right. last two years, but it's never been followed up by enforcement. And yeah. in the case of the app store, uh, it's the app store review. That's what sets the precedent yeah. that yeah. makes the law real. It translates it from the page into real life. It like fleshes right. out the edge cases and Apple has not given us any of this so far. So basically you've got a law on the books that has not been enforced. And therefore after two years, everybody's saying, well, even if I did want to follow the law, if no one else is, yeah. Like I'm just losing out. So I, right. I think ultimately until Apple actually starts to, to establish some of the enforcement precedent to show what they mean, it'll yeah. be very difficult for many app developers to justify following the rules just because they're on the web page. Apple's exactly. had two years of not doing that. So right. I'm definitely going to be watching closely for the next couple of weeks to see if that starts ramping up. Yeah, no, I made the same comparison um, a couple of weeks ago. I wrote this piece about Shopify's audience product.
And I said that that exact same thing, like, look, we have this common law tradition where, you know, law is interpreted via the precedent, right? The precedent is what, you know, makes it tangible and concrete. And we have stare decisis, right? And that doesn't exist here because Apple is the entirety of the judicial system, but they're also the entirety of the enforcement system. And they don't enforce in public. They enforce it in the dark. And that was one of the things about the episode from last year with the ad tech SDK that had all the app updates getting blocked is because we'll thank, I mean, I'm really grateful for the mobile dev memo community for surfacing that because otherwise people wouldn't have known it would have been, Hey, I'm a developer. I just got my app update rejected. And that, that doesn't travel. That knowledge doesn't travel. It's well, then we're going to handle this internally. Right. And no one ever would have known about that. The mobile dev memo community surfaced it. And I tweeted about it and then it got some coverage and then everyone knew about it, but you wouldn't have known about it absent that community of developers that just was like, Hey, anybody else's app update getting rejected today? And so that's the thing. Like if there was like a ledger or just a, a website that listed every single app submission and then whether it was approved or not approved, and if it wasn't approved, why? Well, then we'd know we'd be able to, and app, Apple would be held to the precedent, right? But it's not, they count on all this stuff happening in the dark and developers not talking about it. And because they don't talk about it, then no one ever really knows what's going to be acceptable or not. Now, if there's a big developer, who knows if Apple allows them to do things that, you know, just walk right up to the line or, or blatantly cross it. And if they're important enough, maybe they just sort of look the other way. But if you're a small developer, you're going to be held to this sort of like very vague, you know, rendition of this set of rules. And you'll never want to test that boundary or, or you know, you'll just feel like to, compelled to not because, you know, you, you just don't want to risk getting your app rejected, right? And so so what I like about this is at least they clarified it. At least now everyone knows, okay, now whether you want to test that boundary or not, it's up to you, but you know where the boundary is, right? It's not a vague idea anymore. They've they spelled it out. They did the diagram. Okay, that, that leads me to the next rule because in this case, they were very explicit. They were very explicit about this practice, which is itself kind of nebulous, uh, or at least the definitionally is nebulous. They're very explicit about fingerprinting. And, you know, the woman in the video, she says, Okay, now let's talk about fingerprinting. In the last, you know, two minutes of the video or minute and a half are dedicated to fingerprinting. And she says, fingerprinting is never allowed. That Those are the words that she uses, right? That's a very explicit statement, right? That's a strident statement. Now, we don't really know what constitutes fingerprinting, except that they did kind of define it there. She says, using signals from the device to try to identify the device or user is not allowed. That's what she says is fingerprinting. Now, that's broad. Mm. That basically encapsulates every probabilistic attribution technique that I know about, right? But that's, it's broad, but it's, in a way, it's specific in the sort of prohibition, right? So well, all those things are prohibited. You can't do them. And she doesn't get into like the nitty gritty of like, well, if you do this with this data, you know, because it's all just prohibited, right? So in a way that, yeah, fingerprinting is kind of nebulous still because this is not very specific. But from that lack of specificity, we know that basically that whole practice is not allowed. Now, again, enforcement, how can they enforce it? unclear. And maybe they will, maybe they won't. But at least they've sort of, again, drawn that line in the sand. They've painted that bright red line and they said, this is not allowed. What do you think? I think you're right. It's, and I'd forgotten you'd make that, uh, that law versus case precedent. I knew that I wouldn't have come up with such a good idea on my own. So I apologize for stealing oh, no, no, that. I think without a, a, a lot of, I, I stole that from someone else. Don't feel bad. I stole that from someone <laughs> okay, else. Okay. Third degree plagiarism. Yeah, but yeah. Um, on, on the fingerprinting case, I think you're right. It's maybe not restated the policy so much as they've just re-emphasized it to right. keep it top of mind. And right. the, it's the same words that have been out there in the policy, in the developer licensing agreement for years. But the fact that they took the 
time and effort to restate it in a developer text session. I'm not sure why they would do that unless they planned to do something as a follow-up. The challenge is, I think the way that they restated it and re-emphasized it is still not specific enough that people will decide to stop doing it unless Apple gives some enforcement too. It's basically, it's the same vague, slightly fuzzy legalistic policy language about identifying the user and the device, which I think it seems a lot of people are just pretty well practiced at double thinking their way around. So unless we get the specificity of some, some enforcement decisions that flesh out what they mean is going to have, I think, a limited effect on actual behavior at this point. Well, yes, but I mean, I feel like, because again, yes, you're right, they they just underscored this existing policy, but prior to today, that policy was in an FAQ, it was in a, you know, developer mm -hmm. agreement, it wasn't in your face. And now yeah, there's... Yeah, that's true. A, now, now it's actually written there. You, there's no plausible deniability. Well, I didn't know, I didn't read the FAQ, who cares? Right now, there's a picture of a woman, and next to her face, it says, what about fingerprinting? And below that, it's the caption of what she's saying. And it says, but fingerprinting is never allowed. And there's yes. just zero ambiguity there, right? And what do, yeah, you, and I think, what do you say to that? I think there is much less, there's much less room to kind of wiggle your way around it right. at this point with it being there in a video with somebody's face next to the name. Right. Alex, this was a very enlightening and enjoyable chat. We could have gone on for another hour, I'm sure. I know you have to go. Thank you for being present on the podcast for the second time. Tell people how they can reach out to you, how they can connect with you, how they can chat with you and learn from you. Uh, well, of course, you can find me on the Mobile Dev Memo Slack. That's probably the best way to get me. But I'm also on Twitter, Alex D. Bauer. And I have the Mobile Growth Newsletter, which is news.mobilegrowth.org, which goes out to about 200,000 of your closest friends every few weeks. So you can certainly register for the next edition of that if you're interested. Highly recommend the newsletter. Highly recommend following Alex's feed. It's always very informative. Thank you so much, Alex, and enjoy your weekend. My pleasure. You too. Take care.